If you're new to welcome, new to Element, welcome this morning. And uh, in the seat backs in front of you are Bibles. If you don't have one, you're welcome to take one. If you forgot yours, you're welcome to use one. Also on the tables around the room are sermon notes. And they look like this. And on the front of them are verses for today's sermon and the uh, opportunity to put down questions you might have. On the inside is a recap of the message with some questions for you to discuss with others or to consider. And on the back are some space for you to take notes. Also, if you have a smart device this morning, you can download an a, a application called Uversion. Once you download it and open it, it looks like Bible. And you can open that, click on more and then events and by GPS, you'll get today's sermon notes and announcements and verses for the day. So uh, my name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. I gotta get out of the light here. For the reason, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing way that you've rescued and brought us to yourself that we've been learning how you've chosen, adopted, and brought us to a place in your home. I ask this morning, Lord, that we would be that people that Ephesians speaks of, who have a deep faith and trust in you. That we'd be a people known for that, a people known for how we love one another. And where we fall short, and where we miss that, we pray that by the same grace that has saved us, we would become a people who are deeply in love with you, and love one another, people who are deeply trusting of you. We thank you in your son's good name. Amen. Please be seated. So we are in the New Testament book of Ephesians. This is week five, and I know what you're thinking. This is really weird. It's not COVID. Here's Aaron on video. What's happening? Well, I really wanted the first five weeks of Ephesians to go together. It's not just that I'm anal. I can't let somebody else do a message. It really, though I am, but it really is that I wanted these weeks to go together. So it was important to me to have this week be via video. I did not plan this when I wrote the series. It ended up kind of a last minute thing where I'm out of town, but I wanted this to go together because we need to finish out Ephesians chapter one by looking at everything we have talked about so far. So if you have a Bible open to Ephesians chapter one, that's on page 634 if you're using one of the Bibles at Element. Now we have spent the last four weeks walking through these beginning parts of Ephesians chapter one, looking essentially at Paul's prayer of salvation from God's point of view. Now I've told you this before, but a lot of uh, books by Paul, when he comes in and he speaks, what he does is he says, hello, and then he goes right into, and this is how I pray for you. But Ephesians does not start that way. Ephesians starts with Paul's little hello, and then he starts talking about what God thinks of them, what God has done for them. In Ephesians, there is this long formal prayer about who God is and 
who, how he is to be worshipped, how he is to be adored. God is a personal God. God is not the same as the gods and goddesses of the Ephesians world of that pagan culture. God is not a divine force or an energy known as the sacred or the spiritual or the universe. God is the God who made the world and he made the universe and he made the Ephesians. And he has now made himself known through the person of Jesus Christ. As far, as far as Paul is concerned, any picture of God that does not have Jesus as the center of it is going to be a distortion. And this is why he will constantly talk to us about being in Christ. And as Christians, we should remember that all genuine life and action is going to flow out of the worship of the one true God. So we tell the story of Christ with love and amazement about what he has done when we speak of the good news of the gospel. So after Paul's prayer about God and who he is, then he finally turns his attention to the people in Ephesus and says, now this is how I pray for you. And I want to read you this entire prayer and then we're going to talk about it because what Paul is trying to do is take everything we've talked about so far and now bring it to a place of clarity for the people in Ephesus. Clarity is really important. Like when I was in high school, I had this job at the highway driving and my boss would come to me and he would say, I need you to clean the bathroom. Now the highway, ba highway driving's bathrooms, they were concrete, a big grate in the floor. And I thought, well, what does that mean? Can I take a hose and just spray it all down? Or do I have to touch that? Do I literally have to clean that? And it was always, you have to touch that and clean that. But I got clarity. One time my wife and I were having this discussion a few years after we were married. And she said, I need your help and I want you to clean the house. And so I need to ask for clarity. What does that mean, clean the house? Do I go outside with the hose and spray down the outside of the house so I'm cleaning the house? No. She wants me to vacuum and empty the dishwasher and clean the bathrooms. Great clarity. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is leading us to a place of clarity to understand all that God has done, how it takes place in our lives. So this is what Paul prays. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So here's the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. Now that is a prayer. Now, Mike Harmon, who's going to come up and pray at the end of this, he prays so well. But i got to tell you, it doesn't hold a candle what Paul just said there. How I pray doesn't hold a candle to that. These are great words. And what does Paul say? Spirit of wisdom. 
spirit of revelation, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. What that is, is a prayer for spiritual insight, for clarity about seeing who God is and what he is doing. Paul teaches this amazing truth that we looked at over the last four weeks about how much God loves them and us and what he has done to rescue and save them and us. This truth was a mystery but is now seen in clarity. And Paul tells them this because he wants them to see it and to feel it, both. And many times we equate seeing something with reality. I see it with my eyes, it's right in front of me. And then we equate feeling with emotion. But seeing here is a metaphor for understanding and responding to the truth that moves into a feeling which brings a deeper attachment to who God is and what he is doing in the world. Now, if I was standing in the room, I would right now ask you this question. I'm not, but you can raise your hands anyway and look at everybody else. Anybody here ever have LASIK? Just surgery on your eyeballs so, so you can see again. Just raise your hand. I don't know if you are or not. I don't know. But anyway, if you had LASIK. Now, I had LASIK years and years ago, and the procedure itself is really quick. I mean, it's like a blur. <laughs> No pun intended. It's, it's, it's really fast. But you go in for all your pre-op work, and then the day of the thing, I go in, they put me in this room, they put betadine around my eyes, they give me a volume, which didn't work whatsoever, and they're talking to you, taking another room, you're laying down, look forward, boom, knife, cut the front of your eyeball off. And then all of a sudden, it's like a kaleidoscope, this laser, bump, 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 look forward. It smells like burning hair. That's your eyeball in the midst of that. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes or less, you're done. Now, I am not a good advertiser for LASIK. No one's going to put me in a commercial because that's how I'm going to talk about it. But you go home, you take a nap, you feel like your eyeballs are about to give birth, but you wake up and you can see. Everything in your room where you're sleeping that used to be blurry edges now are clear. You have clarity about everything that is in there because you can now see. Sight is something that is amazing. No one wants to be without it. Well, spiritual sight is something we don't want to miss either. And Paul says what he is trying to do here is bring about a spiritual LASIK for our hearts and our souls so we would see what God is doing. Paul says, I don't just want you to consent to the fact that God loves you because that can almost sound like a blurry edge sometime. What I want you to do is see how God is working all things for your good, to see it and to feel it, for clarity, to bring about that attachment to who God is. Now in Psalm 34, it says, we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's the exact same idea. It was actually said that certain rabbis, when they taught students to memorize the word of God, they would put honey on their lips or on their tongue so they would associate sweetness with the word of God. Well, Paul is praying for these people and ultimately us that we would taste and see how good God is his closeness, his sweetness, how he is working in our lives. Why? Because that is what is going to change us in our lives, seeing God's majesty, having the hearts inside of us enlightened, feeling his love, because that will create a love for him and all that we do that will result in a love for others. And that will begin to drive out this craving for sin in our life. God doesn't just want religious rule followers. What God wants is a people in relationship with him that results in loving worship of him. Clarity. So what does Paul pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
Paul says, I want God to tell you who he is. And then I want you to accept that, to see it, to feel it, to live in it. That's a great prayer. You want to pray for others around you? Pray. God, reveal yourself to them through the scriptures so they see who you are, that they would know who you are, and then give them wisdom. So when they live their life, they actually look like your kids. That's a great prayer. Now, why is this prayer so important to Paul? Because again, he is writing to people who live in the area of Ephesus. In Ephesus, there are 50 to 100 different gods and goddesses that all these people pray to. They believe in good and bad spirits that can be manipulated to impact your life. And so I gave this example a few years ago, but you got to imagine it's like a TV show on a teen network like the, the CW, right? You've got all this teenage angst. So you got a, a girl named Betty, likes a guy named Archie, but Archie likes a girl named Veronica. All good teenage romance shows go this way. It's, it's how they're written. So Betty, in this culture, would need to find a bad spirit to send to Veronica to give her terrible acne or irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. And then she's got to find a good spirit to send to Archie. So Archie would fall under the illusion of thinking Betty's actually attractive. You are to pray cursing on your enemies and blessings upon yourself. But what if Veronica finds out that Betty is sending her this spirit? Well, Veronica now has to find a good spirit stronger than the bad spirit that's coming to her. And then what does Betty need to do? Oh, no, Veronica is going to send a spirit at me of the IBS. And so now I have to figure out a good spirit that's stronger than that bad spirit. I need protection. And it's this ancient form of Wicca in Ephesus. You're trying to figure out the hierarchy, who's more powerful, the secret names, chant the special prayers. And it is so exhausting trying to figure this all out. In Ephesus, they think the human world can actually rule the spirit world, that they can be your puppets. You can pull their strings if you only knew the right words. Now, there are some people today who still believe that. There are some people today who think that's kind of dumb, but those people who think it's dumb are actually sometimes more silly because they believe that everything in the spiritual world is good, that there's nothing in the spiritual world that's bad or dark or evil. We are told today everything spiritual is good. So it doesn't matter who you're praying to as long as you are spiritual because there is a, spirit, a physical and a spiritual world, but the spiritual world's all happy. No demons, just angels. Paul will say, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, that some demons masquerade as an angel of light. Question, in our world today, is everybody good and nice? Or are there some people who would blow you up with a car bomb if they could? Well, the same thing in the spiritual world. Not everything is good and helpful. And in Ephesus, people would take requests. They would pull the strings, pray the ancient ritual prayers, and chuck it into the spiritual world, hoping that would hit some good spirit on the head. And they would open it, and they say, oh, no, we got to get that guy some hair. We got to get that lady a smaller butt. This came from earth. It's crazy. And Paul is saying it matters who you pray to. Why? Because prayer is the language of relationship. It's about who we have attached ourselves to, that God has come to us in relationship. So in verse 17, Paul tells them, this is who you pray to. One, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Jesus. Secondly, the Father of all glory. That's God the Father. Third, may give you the Spirit. That's the Spirit. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit. 
Paul's goal, it is worship. And he wants them to think about how glorious God is. Not what they need to go and do for God, but walk around amazed at what God has already done for them because that will then translate into how they live. I read this whole article by J.D. Greer who talks about these verses. And he said this, The only thing that can break the captivating power of sin over you is a more intense love for Jesus. So we need to see Jesus and let that rewrite all the cultural garbage that we have allowed to inform us in our lives. What does Paul specifically pray for them to see? Well, in that article, J.D. Greer actually had four things. I'm going to share those with you because I thought they were good. And it's really about moving to this place of clarity of seeing what God wants us to know. What used to be a mystery is now seen in the fullness. So clarity number one, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So this is hope. Now the problem today is when we hear the word hope, we have a misunderstanding of English and we think it means something that we desire, but we're not sure it's going to come to pass. I mean, we hope it will, but we're not sure. So today's like the Super Bowl. Who's going to win? Well, who's even going to be in the Super Bowl? You all had your predictions, if you like football, before the season began. And now you got here and probably none of your teams are even there. I've got a friend named Jeremy. He has this hope in the 49ers. And I feel like every single year, it's a meaningless hope because it is always dashed all of the time. But biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is certain. I found this definition and it says that biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty that hasn't happened yet, but you know is going to happen. And what that means is, what God has determined to do, God will do. He has settled it forever. And what has God settled? Everything that we have talked about so far in those first 14 verses, that God has set his love on us from eternity. God is never turning back. And Paul says, I pray that you will be able to see the certainty of that and know the value of it, that you would get clarity in what that means. See, the clarity of knowing the hope to which you were called is going to bring about gigantic changes in our lives. I mean, how could it not? I have read in a few places that the reason certain people indulge in certain things is sometimes they're bored or stressed. Like think of overeating as an example. I mean, it's not the only reason people overeat, but it's a common theme. Now, eating is like a small way sometimes to add some adventure to your life or a way to escape pressure. And that becomes a problem. See, eating is meant to be enjoyable. God created our taste buds so we can taste lots of different things. God could have made nutrient nuggets like dog food that grew on trees, and that's all the nutrition you need, just dog kibble. And yet, instead, he makes this cornucopia of food and flavors out there that's simply amazing. But if you eat to feed your soul, you are going to overeat. And the same goes for drinking. You know, God calls his people to have feast days and come together and enjoy choice food and choice wine with one another. But if you drink to feed your soul, you will become an alcoholic. And the same thing becomes true of relationships or a myriad of other things. When your soul is hungry, when it's not fixed on God, you will look for things to fill it. But when it is fixed on God himself, what he is doing in us, the promises that he has made, that changes our focus. C.S. Lewis said that we are like a bunch of kids who are playing in a mud puddle and our parents have come to us and said, hey, we're going to go to the beach, but you've never been to the beach. And you're thinking, how could the beach compare to my mud puddle? It just, there's no way it could. It's because we don't understand. 
the only way we will ever avoid the trappings of materialism or the race to get ahead is by a greater and more certain hope. That's the clarity. If you don't understand that you are loved by the God of the universe that made everything, you will be driven for a need to have everyone else's approval. If you don't understand your security is in Christ and His salvation of you, you will be obsessed with trying to accumulate so much that all your other fears go away. But if you understand God wants a relationship with you because He loves you, you will find meaning and hope in that relationship, and you won't have to find it in every other relationship around you. Knowing the hope that which we are called to helps us to overcome sin and temptation, and it also helps us to endure painful trials, like maybe a horrible job as a high school kid at the highway driving, or maybe the horrible job you have now. If we know what God is doing in us, giving us hope and grace and eternal life with Him, it changes our perspective on pain. And Paul wants us to grasp the assurance of that, the beauty of what God is doing in us now, clarity. I've told you about this uh, pastor in Texas. His name is Matt Chandler, and years ago he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He goes through a couple years of chemotherapy and pain, and yet today he says he wouldn't have changed any of it because all that God taught him through all of it. Paul himself experienced great pain. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul will call it a light momentary affliction. He was, had rocks thrown at him as they tried to kill him. He was beaten, he was thrown in jail, he was starved, he was shipwrecked, and he calls it a light momentary affliction that is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Are you enduring right now? Do you have someone you love who is suffering? Are you in a bad relationship or a bad marriage? Do you have a frustration at work? Whatever pain you are in and whatever you are going through that feels so unsure, you have the assurance of God's love. You are fully forgiven and you are fully accepted by God. You have the knowledge that He is present with you in all things for His glory and our good. And that is the hope to which we were called. No matter what happens, whether people are mistreating you or life is great or your life is blown up, we can always respond to what God is doing and hope because we know His promises are sure. Clarity number one. Now, clarity number two is the second half of verse 18, and it says, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So hope goes to inheritance. And you might think, what does the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints even mean? Well, what's an inheritance? It's something you get, hopefully of great value, when a rich relative dies. So whose inheritance is Paul talking about here? Now, sometimes we think, well, that's my inheritance, but it's not. It's God's. Paul here says God has an inheritance. What is that inheritance? It is the saints. The saints. That's not a post-Tom Brady football team. That is those who are called that God has chosen. So you, if you've trusted Christ with your life, you are God's inheritance. And God does not give up His inheritance. The reality Paul speaks of here is he wants to take, again, all that he has talked about in verses 3 through 14 and see the worth and value that God has placed on us, not because we are worthy but because God has deemed us to be. God takes a joy in us as an inheritance. What do you even get? The person who has everything. What would you buy Bill Gates for Christmas? He's, he can buy everything. What do you get him? Well, what do you get God, the one who made and owns everything? Well, he gets us. Now, sometimes that doesn't sound like a great inheritance or a great present, but it's what he wants. 
God has placed a worth upon us that is so precious to him that Jesus purchases us with his blood. Jesus dies to save us. And Paul is praying that we would see that, that we would feel that, where we would be overwhelmed by our value to God and what he sees us and his commitment to us, and our hearts will be attached deeply to him. Not to sound heretical in any way, which is a terrible way to start an analogy or a metaphor, but if you have ever dated somebody in your life and then you didn't marry them, like you dated them and you, and you broke up, you know, maybe some glaring fault popped up. Like, oh, it's so nice. And all of a sudden, ooh, I don't know what that is. Like Seinfeld. I used to watch a show called Seinfeld. And Seinfeld would date all these different girls during the show and he would just break up with all of them. Like one of them ate their peas one at a time. Uh, one of them had this weird laugh, just breaks up. I know a guy who's been engaged lots of times and, and most of the time he breaks up for just kind of dumb reasons. <laughs> like one of the time the girl's like, you need to get a real job. And that, that was the end of it right there. But sometimes it's done stuff. Now think about someone who has children instead. Parents love their kids totally differently. Parents don't discover a fault in their kid and say, oh, sorry, this is just not working out. It's not about you, it's me. You've got to go find another family. Parents don't do that. And that's the difference between dating and family. You aren't being dated by God to see if you are good enough. You have been adopted in. You are family through the gospel. Faults in kids are something parents realize kids need help in, to grow through. Many times those faults bring a compassion that make parents actually want to protect their kids and their weaknesses. And I believe that's how God loves us. He is tender. He is compassionate, like a father with a child. Not that he doesn't grow us and move us out of the places where we have our failures and faults and push us to new areas. But when God saw us, he saw everything every fault that we had, every shortcoming, and he chooses to love us anyway and make us his inheritance. That's what Paul says I want you to have clarity on. Third clarity is this, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. That is power, hope, inheritance, power. So what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power? What could that possibly be? Glad you asked. Paul defines it for us. He goes on. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There it is. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is talking about a power called resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were looking for an example about God's power, I tend to think of creation. That's what I think of. Nothing, and then bam, everything comes into existence. Everything I know and don't know. Everything I see and I don't see. Boom. I would say, according to the power at work in creation. Now, here's a weird example I recently read about. I don't know if it's true. I saw it on the internet, and you know how things are on the internet, but go Wikipedia. So anyway, a woodpecker apparently has a spring joint in its neck that works like a shock absorber, and it's able to peck a tree 20 times a second. The woodpecker has a tongue. It is six inches long, and that's what enables him to do that. Now, it may not sound impressive to you that a woodpecker has a six-inch tongue, but a woodpecker, the average woodpecker, is only six inches tall. So that's pretty big. Like if you had a six foot tongue, 
That would be weird. You would probably choke on it. But the tongue, it goes back inside the woodpecker's head and it wraps around its neck and it becomes like that shock absorber. And it bangs to a tree and it's got a barb at the end. And when it finds a bug or a worm, it hits it and skewers it and pulls it back out again. God's power made a woodpecker with a six-inch tongue and it doesn't choke on it. That's impressive. That's an example of the creative power of our God. Or think about the galaxy. If you hopped in a car and drove 80 miles per hour away from the earth from the moment Jesus died, you still wouldn't be near the edge of our solar system. And there are billions and trillions of solar systems out there, and God created all of that with a word. But none of that is the measure that Paul uses when it talks about God's power. It's resurrection. Why? Because resurrection is the greatest power possible imaginable. It brings life out of death. Creation brings life out of nothing. But resurrection is about bringing life out of death, which is greater because death isn't neutral. Death is corrosive. Death is destructive. Death is at work in the world because of human sin. It ruins God's creation and our lives and ultimately everything that we touch. And Paul speaks of the power of resurrection because not only is God powerful enough to create, to create good stuff out of nothing, he is able to create good things out of our sin. And that is something that needs to bring clarity to us. I don't know if a lot of people in our world or even our churches realize this, but a number of the most sensitive parts of our lives have been touched by the decay of death destructive emotions, obsessive jealousy, self-centeredness, being controlling, addictions. The brokenness that is in our world is the result of death. It's the result of separation from God. But God brings life out of death. And that means God can also bring life to the deadest parts of your life. And Paul says, I want you to see that power. I want you to feel that power. I want you to get clarity, spiritual insight, your heart enlightened so you would understand this and be clear on it. So you would grow so deeply attached to God and what he has done your entire life would be consumed by him. Clarity number four, you got hope, inheritance, power. Number four, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, this is the church, but also the finality of Jesus' rule. One of the biggest themes in the book of Ephesians is that God has a plan and purpose and nothing can stop that plan or purpose. God has one great purpose in the earth, to the end to which he is controlling everything, and that is his glory and our good. And the work he is doing here, he is doing through his people, and they are called the church. The church is not a building, it's a people who God is moving us to a place to love him and resemble him as he lives inside of us and brings about that work. As I was talking about J.D. Greer in this article, he actually likens it to one of those movies that have trackers going on during the movie, like a military movie, tracks different military installations or different nations around the world. Wall Street movies, they have a thing that tracks stocks or the business sector. Sports movies go and they track scores of different teams. And this is what he says. On Jesus' big map of what is going on in the world, it is his work in the church. That's what the tracker's following. The big deal on the earth from God's perspective. And I know we get so freaked out about this, but it's not what's going on in Washington or Hollywood or Wall Street. It's what's going on in the church in us. And that should bring us some clarity, especially when we want to freak out. 
I mean, we walk these things, hope, inheritance, power, the church with the finality of Jesus' rule. Paul says, get clear on those things. Now, what I want to do to bring this together is ask you three quick questions. You don't have to answer those right now. There's not going to be a test later, but they are in your sermon notes. And so I'd like you to think about and answer these questions. Number one is this. What is your source of hope? What is your source of worth? Maybe you're pre-LASIK and everything's all fuzzy about what that means. And maybe today you can get a little bit of clarity on what that means. All of us have a place where we get our source of worth. Could be a relationship, could be a job, could be a substance, a 401k, brings us security. I think it's pretty hard for us to honestly assess all this in our lives. And this is a good reason why we need one another in our lives. Because sometimes friends can be the most loving when they feel the most harsh. I mean, not just harsh to be harsh, but sometimes they love us the most in honesty. And let me let you in on a secret. Okay, I think there's a myth out there that some Christians believe, or maybe even some people from pulpits have said, that people who aren't Christians and don't go to church, they feel hopeless and worthless and powerless. And that's not true. That is not true. Most unbelievers have a hope. It is just different than our hope. And you at some point in your life were an unbeliever and your hope probably just disintegrated and fell apart because any hope that isn't Christ is going to fall apart. And when you see that hope fall apart, it's like, is there an enduring, lasting hope? And then Christ comes into our lives and he finds us and rebuilds us and makes us his inheritance and gives us hope and power and shows us who he is and it completely changes us. And so I think it's good for us to answer this question because many times, When we see people going through stuff and they just irritate us, well, one day their hope is going to fall apart and they're going to need someone like you who understands what real hope is to step into their life. But you have to know what real hope is in Christ and have some clarity on that. So what is your source of hope and what is your source of worth right now? Second question is this, what are you living for? What are you living for in your life? Everything besides Jesus' purpose is going to fail, especially, you know, with death, it's going to fade. God has determined that our lives will serve His purposes, whether we are obedient or disobedient, whether in life or in death. And one writer says, a great way to figure out what you are living for is to ask yourself, if your life was a movie, where would the camera be pointed? Is the camera pointed at you? Is the camera pointed at some thing, some relationship, some job, whatever it is? Or is your camera pointed at Christ? Ephesians 1 says this story is all about Jesus and only what is done for Jesus will last. My third question is this. Do you, we, us, do we even realize how much power is available to us? How much God has given us? Again, this is the power of resurrection at work to transform us. Uh, There is this California state website where if you get a refund and you don't ever go pick it up, they have to give it to the government so the government keeps it and makes interest on your money. But if you go look at it, you can find some money there that's never been claimed. My wife and I do this every once in a while. We just got, the first time we did, we got like a hundred bucks. I just did it a few weeks ago and we got like 80 bucks in there. It's just sitting there. But that's kind of like our lives in Christ. We have all this power to live and glorify God and we leave it sitting there completely unclaimed. See, God is not short on power, but we are typically short on trusting Him. Psalm chapter 2 is written to Israel, you know, millennia ago. And God says this in Psalm 2.8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. But they never stepped into it. They never trusted Him in His power. 
And so what Paul is saying through all of this is that may we understand the gospel in such a way that we have the clarity of what Jesus has done to live in this understanding, no longer hidden in mystery, but seen in clarity, hope, inheritance, power, Jesus' rule through his people. Because I think when we see that, we understand hope because this story is his. And Paul says, I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. I want it to go down so deep inside of you that you are so connected with God that your hope and your life is found in him. You know what element? Every single week, we talk about taking you guys to this place of communion because communion is a reflection of what takes place in those first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. What God did to rescue and save us. This is why you take a cracker and you break it. It's like Christ's body that was broken for us. When you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, it reminds us of His blood that has been shed for you and me. Now at Element, when we do communion, we don't pass it around the room. It's a response. We actually have to get out of our seat and go and take it because it reminds us as a response in us that I want to respond to God as well. And it's a way to begin to reset us. And I'm hoping that today communion for you, you becomes a place of clarity to see and to feel what God has done, that these things would become a reality, that your hope would be found in Him that you would understand that God has called you to be His inheritance, even in the times and places that you fail and fall, that there is a power that He has given to you to live out this life. And ultimately, all things are about His rule and how He lives through His people. And if you need prayer today, there will be people to pray with you over in the lounge across the way. You can go during music. You can go uh, after service and talk to them. If you are someone whose hope is not found in Christ, you feel like your life is falling apart, or you feel like you have no power to live this way and you want someone to pray with you and walk with this and talk with you, they would love to be able to do that with you. Because we all need to pray for one another and with one another to be able to understand what God is doing in our lives. You know, at Element, like we say, we do not pass a plate. We are not a church who says, here, you, you, you have to give in this. We, also, we want to be people who respond to what God has done in generosity, because our God has been generous with us, and that's why there's offering boxes on the side wall, or you can give online. But we don't pass the plate, because we want to understand the great hope that we have, the great generosity that God has first given us, and that teaches us to be generous. And I would really encourage you to take those sermon notes, and there's a lot of questions in there as you walk through it, but just those last three, what is your hope and source of worth? What are you living for? Do you realize how much power is available to you? And hopefully you have some people you can walk through those questions with this week to talk about those things, to really get some clarity on what you believe and what you think so that we would all come to the place of complete surrender to who Jesus is, that we would take all that we have seen in Ephesians chapter 1 after these five weeks and come to the place of awe of who God is, that He would love us and draw us to Himself and call us His children, and we could walk in the power that He has given us. I'm going to ask Mike, one of our elders, to come and pray for you guys this morning. And, and as he does, just, just take a moment to begin to think through those questions. So let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning <clears throat> because of your great love, you open our eyes 
You open our hearts that we might see, and not just see, but to see clearly. And in seeing clearly that we would not just understand, but we would begin to experience how great is your love for us. Lord, that we'd begin to understand hope in a new way, hope that springs from who you are and how you revealed yourself to us, God of steadfast love, God of mercy and grace, God of faithfulness, and out of that, that we would find great hope in this life. That you're God who brings clarity and understanding to who we are. That we don't have to strive and fight and posture for our worth and our value, but it comes from who we are belonging to you, created in your image, chosen, adopted, loved. And Lord, we pray for the clarity you would bring to us. Lord, we're, we're, we're pretty sure sometimes of how messed up we are, but that you'd bring a clarity to us that out of that death, out of that decay, that you're a God who brings life. And that's the kind of power that's at work in us. And that you're making all things new in us by the power brought a resurrection to your son. God, help us to understand and even more to experience in our brokenness your recreation, your restoration, your redemption. And Lord, too, we ask that you would cause us to find rest in the fact that we are assured that you win, that your kingdom prevails and that you will use us in the midst of that to bring about your kingdom in the world that we live in, in the places that we live and we work and we, in our neighborhoods, that you would use us to reflect you well. And that you call us to things that look impossible, but in the end, they aren't. We win because of you. Father, so we, we give you our love and we, we pray for your spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts, cause us to see in new ways and to experience and know you in a greater degree of your faithfulness and your steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we take some time to worship in song, Ask the Lord to show you what it is your hope is in. Now, today, what are you hoping in? What are you finding your worth in today? What makes you feel worth something? And then also, are you experiencing where you feel dead, where you feel rotten? God's power to bring life in the midst of that. Ask God to show you sing some songs with us, take communion. If you need prayer, get prayer. Let's worship him together.